0: The scripture for the sermon today is from Galatians chapter 5, and it's verses 15 through 26. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. But the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh." Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. This is God's
1: Word. Thank you, Katie. This summer we've been working our way through Paul's letter to the Galatian churches. Uh, The Galatian churches were a group of churches in what is today central Turkey, and Paul, a church planner, went and planted these churches. He would plant a church in a city, um, spend months or years, whatever it took, to gather together people, train the leaders, train them in Christian worship and prayer, train them in the Christian story about Jesus, and then he would move on. But of course they had problems. And so they would write him letters, and he would write back in response to the letters that he got from all the churches he had planted. Galatians is probably the earliest letter that Paul wrote, probably the earliest writing in the New Testament. And Paul responds to uh, a big debate or controversy within the early church. The early church was predominantly Jewish. You know, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah in Israel, the Jewish nation. All the apostles were Jewish. Paul was Jewish. Um, and so he would create these churches with Jews, but also with Gentiles. That means non Jews, people from around the Roman world. And there was a controversy because some of the Jewish Christians were saying to the Gentiles to be a real Christian, you've got to become Jewish like us. You've got to follow all the law that Moses gave to Israel, you've got to circumcise your children. You've got to follow all the rituals and rules and regulations that we grew up. And then you're a real Christian. And Paul, in this letter, Galatians, is adamant. All you need is faith in Jesus Christ. Don't participate in the controversy. Don't add anything to the gospel. Jesus Christ alone. Faith in him. No other laws, no other rituals, no other practice. He is enough. And so we've been looking through the the letter of Galatians as Paul addresses the elements of this controversy. In this part of his letter, he's still responding to the controversy. You see it in verse 15 there. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. Controversy in the church can destroy a church. But now he switches... Last week we saw him begin to talk about the elements of Christian freedom, the freedom that you get from Christ alone. Now he begins to talk in what theologians refer to as spiritual theology, the underlying basis for Christian transformation, how we become more Christ-like, what is actually going on when you become a Christian. And so this section is extremely important and as we will see has created controversy down through the history of the church verse 16 so i say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh this whole section is what does that mean to walk by the spirit to follow christ to be transformed into Christ's likeness. What is actually going on in practice? So let's have a look at it. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, You are not under the law. These verses are amongst the most debated, Um, and it's all about this word translated flesh. We use the uh, New International Version of the Bible. It's the most popular version of the Bible in the English-speaking world, in America, in Canada, in New Zealand, in Australia. Um, it was first translated in, in the 1978, and especially in America, the evangelical world has embraced this translation. But there has been a controversy over this word, flesh. If you literally translate it, it's from the Greek word sake, and it means literally flesh or body. But there's been a problem with that translation. Because it seems to pit the body, or the flesh, the physical material fact that we have bodies, it seems to put that in opposition to the spirit. As if the flesh is bad, and the spirit is good. As if material existence is a problem, and that we've got to get away from it. And it has resulted in some Christians, and this has happened down through the centuries, Some Christians seeing the body as a problem, as unspiritual, as shameful, as seeing physical desire and pleasure as a negative, eating, drinking, sports, exercise, sexual desire, whatever you have, that all those things are negative because they are bodily desires, and that somehow we should exalt ourselves from the physical and the material and we should be purely spiritual. Sitting on clouds, playing harps in white robes. But that is actually not what Paul is talking about here. And the original NIV translation did not translate this as the flesh. In fact, if you go look at your old NIVs, and there were millions of them printed, it puts here sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the spirit. And you might actually have that translation in your Bible. You should check. In 2011, the NIV changed the translation. And it's the translation that we have now to avoid this problem. The fact that they had chosen sinful nature when the word itself referred to flesh was criticized all around the world. That the NIV was run by uh, Calvinists and they wanted somewhere in the Bible to be able to point to the phrase sinful nature. Um, And so in 2011, we went back to the flesh. And uh, we actually now use the 2011 translation of the NIV. So why is this an issue? Because, I would argue, that what Paul is talking about is the sinful nature. He is not opposing our physical natures and our spiritual natures. What he is opposing is our sinful nature, Spirits, bodies, minds, hearts, against and all that desires things other than God with a spiritual nature which is also physical and desires the things of God. It's not a distinction between flesh and spirit, but between sinful desires and wholesome desires for God. And you can see this. The list that we go through in 19 to 21 includes hatred, jealousy, ambition, ego, all kinds of dissension. These are not physical things. They're not um, what our bodies do. They're what our minds do. It's how we relate to each other. So it says flesh, but when you see it, don't think in terms of some kind of carnality. Think more in terms of the whole being of a non-Christian being predisposed to sin, being corrupted by sin. And then it makes sense. Why is this important? Because it helps explain what what spiritual growth actually looks like. What is the issue that we are dealing with? Paul expands on this. I'm going to read this to you. And by the way, if you're interested in this, Romans 7 is the place to go. Romans 7 is the basis of Christian spiritual theology. In Romans 7, Paul unpacks this idea and tells us exactly what he's talking about by applying it to himself and his own growth. So I'm going to read this to you. If you're interested, look at Romans 7 if you have a Bible. This starts in verse 15. So remember, this is Paul speaking, and he's speaking about his own spiritual life, And he's speaking about his own struggles and his own growth. And this is what he says. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. Sounds like a lunatic, right? I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. He sounds schizophrenic, like he's talking about two different sides or parts of himself. He sounds like, if you've ever watched Lord of the Rings, he sounds like Gollum, with those two different personalities struggling within him. Well, that's exactly, by the way, what he is talking about, because Tolkien used this to create the character of Gollum. He's talking about an inner divide at the very center of human nature, a struggle, a conflict. He continues. It is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. He knows the good. He desires the good. But his sinful nature, that is the aspect of himself that is still ungodly, what uh, in other places he refers to as the old man, is there fighting him at the very center of who he is. There is a conflict going on. The reformer Martin Luther wrote a, a whole book on this, which he called The Bondage of the Will. And he was describing the fact that we are in bondage to the sinful nature, that it overpowers us and it makes us do what we do not want to do, Paul continues, I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. Sin living in him that, in a sense, takes control of his will. Not in a sense, it actually does. By continuing to desire everything that is ungodly, it distorts and corrupts our will, our hearts, our souls, everything about us. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So what is he saying? There is an old man. Paul also in the letter to Corinthians refers to the old Adam or the corrupt nature. There is an old man and a new man, a new Adam. The old is the pre-Christian self without any spirit, no Holy Spirit, no Savior, alone in the world, orphaned and subject to disease and death. But now, because of Jesus, there is a new man, a new Adam, a new creation. When the Holy Spirit comes in, a seed is planted, a spiritual seed that grows, that produces a new person. There's an old Tony, there's a new Tony. One is subject to sin and death. One is now subject to Jesus as Lord and life and a future. And these two are struggling right now in my heart and in your heart. This battle to the death literally is happening right now in everyone in this room. The old life the pre-Christian life, the old Adam, are all the habits and patterns of behavior, all the assumptions about what is the good life, the hopes and dreams, everything that we are that is not grounded in the reality of God. The new life, the new Christian nature, the one that is seeded and planted by the Holy Spirit, is all of our life that is grounded in the reality of God. This is the part of us that enables us to pray and to worship God, to say Jesus is my Lord. It is the life shaped by God's agenda, by God's expectations and character. It is a life with new contours which reflect God's word and his truth a new relationship with him through Christ, a new relationship with other human beings. It is shaped by the church. It is shaped by the Bible. It is shaped by other Christians. When we baptize Sawyer, it is the promise that you made as Christian people to help shape his life in Christ's likeness. So it is God active in the world and each Christian heart and every one of us. Now, how do we transfer our allegiance from the old to the new? Do we just suck it up? Is it just an act of will? Do we buy a book, five habits or seven habits or ten habits of successful people? What do we do? This is how Paul ends Romans 7. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The solution to the old man, to our sinful nature, is not us acting as an act of will, gritting our teeth, and trying to do the right thing. It is us acknowledging that Jesus Christ is our Savior and that we need to be saved. That we can't do it by ourselves. That our hearts are corrupt and our wills are corrupt. We need a Savior to come in and rescue us. And until you acknowledge that, until you know that, you will never grow spiritually. All those books about doing are missing the point. Lay down your deadly doing and turn to Jesus. That is spiritual growth. That is Christian spiritual life. And then Paul goes on in our passage up here in Galatians to contrast the two ways of life, the two natures. Verse 19. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Remember, we are thinking of flesh in terms of the whole nature, not just the body, but the whole human being—the sinful human being—are obvious. Sexual or immorality. The Greek uh, "ponia" literally adultery, sex outside of marriage. Impurity, literally uncleanness, polluting our physical bodies through unnatural sexual practices and relationships. Debauchery. This is lasciviousness. Defining our life with sex rather than other things. Pursuing that to the exclusion of other parts of our humanity. You can think of those all as ways that our sinful nature causes us to abuse ourselves. That is not to be fully fruitful human beings. By narrowing. And what looks like freedom ends up trapping people. But he goes on, abusing our relationship with God. Idolatry. Witchcraft. This is um, a little misleading, actually. Um, the ideas of witches and broomsticks and black cats, they weren't prevalent in Paul's time, so he's not actually talking about witches. The word here is pharmakia, from which we get our English word Pharmacy. So he's talking about medicines, potions, hallucinogenic drugs, poisons. Back in in the day there, there were pagan worships that involved getting intoxicated in different ways. It would be the equivalent today of Native Americans using peyote or Rastafarians using marijuana. It is using drugs or medicines intoxicating the mind producing hallucinations or different altered states of of mind as a simulacrum of true spirituality, which is a relationship with God. So we abuse ourselves when we follow the sinful nature, our bodies. We abuse our relationship with God. But we also, as we try to follow these different desires, abuse other people. Hatred. Discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies. Orgies there, by the way, doesn't mean sexual orgies. It's talking about drinking binges or, you know, over feasting. You know, when the Romans used to feast and then they would go throw up somewhere and they'd come back and they'd do it all again. So just when, when a desire, a healthy desire becomes an over desire and becomes grotesque. These are all signs of a disordered human being. A human being who is not centered on God. Who is not being obedient to God. Who thinks they are acting freely by following whatever desires they have. But these desires conflict with each other and pull pull people's lives apart. So why do we do it? If it's so destructive... If it's so terrible, why did Paul, remember Paul says this happened to him too. He tries to do the right thing, but his sinful nature keeps taking him back. Why do we go back to our old natures so easily? Because they feel great. Because they feel good. They're comfortable. We do the things that we do in order to deal with problems in our life, in order to feel free, in order to feel special. We have multiple reasons for doing it, but we all come to our bad habits for a reason. They become habits because we do them again and again because at the time they feel good. You know, when I was growing up, um, I was uh, in a rugby team. And my dad and all the dads used to take the rugby team on Saturday morning. We'd go play rugby, and then we'd go to the pub. And I started going to the pub with my dad when I was about 13 might even 12, I can't exactly remember. And all the dads proudly said to their sons, you're a real man now, and here's a pint. So uh, you can, that probably explains a lot about me, right? <laughs> and it explains a lot of the reason the English people love pubs so much. So for me, alcohol was always a very positive thing, a sign of maturity. And when I got old enough, a sign of actually being able to escape from my dad and go somewhere else with my friends. And also a place of comfort. An English pub is a very comfortable place. And you can cry into your beer and you can tell your friends all your problems and they'll tell you you're wonderful and give you a hug. And English people can only hug if they're a little bit drunk anyway. (laughs) So it becomes the refuge, right? A good thing. But when it becomes the habitual way to deal with problems, it becomes a bad thing. When it becomes the way you deal with challenge, or a bad relationship, or when you feel exhausted, or when you're confused or alienated, when it becomes habitual, when it becomes a thing that you, that I, and it's still true, I still feel it, when I feel rattled, or I feel uncomfortable, or I feel challenged, my first response is, I'm going to go have a drink. It's my pattern, it's my habit, it is the sinful Tony saying, don't worry about anything else, just take care of you. Remember the good old days, let's go back to that. But when it's the only way of dealing with problems, when it is the first thing that I do, it's a problem, it's destructive. As I get older, I can't even have more than a pint or two without feeling completely exhausted the next day. And I'll tell you one thing. Alcohol has never, ever solved a problem. It might make you feel good, and and it does make me feel good. But it has never, ever solved a problem. And so what's the solution? Recognize who can solve problems. How do you change? You look to Jesus. You find a new way of being, new patterns of behavior, new habits that actually will produce change. And we see it here in verse 22. You know, Verse 19 is the acts of the flesh, that is, the things that we do because of our sinful nature, how we respond to problems, how we relate to the world. This is human beings doing things under their own strength. But Christianity is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Completely different. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, I always remember patience when I see that word. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Against such things, there is no law. Recognize what this is. It's not a list of things to do. This is a promise. If you're a Christian, if the Holy Spirit is in you, this is what is happening. This is what will happen. This is what you should be looking for and expect in yourself and other people. Jay Packer, um, a great American theologian, wrote this. The Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit, works through means. By means, he means things you can think about and, and argue about, not some kind of weird voodoo. Comprehensible means. The Spirit works through means, through the objective means of grace. Namely, biblical truth, prayer, fellowship, worship, and the Lord's Supper. By objective, it means that when you participate in the Lord's Supper, you will receive grace if you come in Jesus' name. When you pray in Jesus' name, you will receive grace and be brought into God's presence. When you worship, you will receive grace. This is objective. It will happen to you. But there are also, and he continues, subjective means of grace, whereby... We open ourselves up to change, namely, thinking, listening, questioning oneself, examining oneself, admonishing oneself, sharing what is in one's heart with others, and weighing any response that they make. The Holy Spirit shows His power in us not by constantly interrupting our use of these means with visions, impressions, or prophecies. Such communications come only rarely, and to some believers not at all, but rather by making these regular means effective to changes for the better and for the wiser as we go along. Habit-forming is the Spirit's ordinary way of leading us on in holiness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control are all of them habitual. Habitual ways of thinking, habitual ways of feeling, habitual ways of behaving to other people. You see what he's saying? The fruit of the Spirit, it's a gentle process. It is something growing within us. There's no promise of quick and easy wealth here. You're not going to win the lottery. There's no prosperity gospel. No promise of celebrity or extraordinary achievement. But what is promised here is that as these become the habits of you and me and of our church, as this becomes the pattern of our behavior and the way we treat each other, we will become increasingly integrated. Our life focused on Jesus will become more focused and integrated. The bits and parts of who we are will not be pointing in different directions. We will start to work well with each other. As we grow in a community defined by joy and love and forgiveness and peace, we will become better human beings. And such communities will tend to produce well-adjusted children, successful people who can deal with problems, hard circumstances. But it's a slow habit. It is not some thunderbolt. It is forming these habits in ourselves and in our children, but also in our friends in this church, taking the time to express ourselves in these ways making this the norm, creating a culture defined by the Holy Spirit and not defined by the outside world with all its competing agendas. That's what Christianity looks like. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit let us keep in step with the Spirit. What does that mean? Crucifying the flesh. Well, it means that we put to death the old man. The Puritans talked about mortification. That is, denying and repenting of the habits and the behaviors of our old self and turning... Literally, that's what repentance means turning to God and our new selves, and living more and more out of our new selves. Now, of course, this part is personal. It's a decision, it's a commitment that everyone has to make themselves. You have to do it, I have to do this. For myself, when I speak of myself, when I think about how this worked in me in practice. I became a Christian at 30, and I basically spent uh, the previous 12 years just traveling and trying out different ways of living in different parts of the world. And I thought I understood it. I thought I had a sense of the general scope of what human beings could do and how people lived. I realized I was very lucky that by the standards of most people, I was healthy, I was educated. I had a passport that allowed me to go virtually anywhere in the world. But I didn't feel happy. I didn't feel joy. I craved new experience, but there was always something missing. By the way, by and large, I don't think happy people travel very much. It's only unhappy people that relentlessly travel. And I kept looking for something, some kind of strangler that would solve all my problems, the perfect group of people, the perfect situation, the perfect weather. But one thing about traveling is that no matter how far you go, you have to bring yourself with you. All the baggage, all the bad habits, all the dysfunction, the irrational craziness, that comes with you. And it's amazing how you can run away from a bad situation somewhere and go a continent away, or on a different continent, and you recreate exactly the same problems, because it's still you. And for me, it changed at 30. It was only when I heard about Jesus Christ and started to read about him in the Bible, I started with the Gospel of John, that I realized the truth. The Bible was saying to me, Tony Hinchliffe is not a unique and precious little snowflake who deserves to be loved. The world owes me nothing. Rather, Tony Hinschliff is a disaster. Tony Hinschliff is a real problem in the world. In fact, he is the problem. And he needs serious help. More than that, he needs a savior. He needs to be saved from himself, and the world needs to be saved from him. There will be no peace in the world until somebody does something about Tony. Now, nobody had ever said that to me but the Bible did. And it's a sobering message. But it is good news. Because it says there is a way out. There is a way out of a dysfunctional world, a dysfunctional self. There's a way out of this small life that we're in by ourselves. All we have to do is to admit that there is a problem and we need to be saved. And that Savior is Jesus. And immediately you do that. Immediately I did that. The old life, although it still is comfortable, and I still slip back into it at the first opportunity, the old life is not nearly as attractive. And the old desires, I know, are not going to fill this need and this hunger. Only Jesus can do that. Only the new desire for him and the agenda, and the life, and the community that only he can create will do. And so I became a Christian. Now, I'm sure of you, a lot of you would be less melodramatic, but you all have to go through it. At some point, all of us have to recognize that if we continue to live in our old self, nothing will change. It is the increasing desire and hunger for the new self. For Jesus as our Lord, that will change us. And when we spend our time with others who feel the same way, and we shape our life around his agenda, that's when the spirit will start to bear fruit in our lives. And we will see it. If you could only look at your old self, I've gone back and looked at pictures and journals that I used to write, Now, I am still selfish, but gosh, I was a selfish, miserable person in my teenage years. And thank God that he saved me. Now, everybody has a piece of scripture, something in the Bible, that showed them the truth. I want to read you mine. It's uh, Psalm 16, and I'm going to end by reading it to you. But as you listen to these words, think about what Jesus has said to you. What melted your heart the first time? Remember it. Thank him for it. Dedicate yourself to repenting of the old and coming back to him. Starting this day, if you haven't done it for a while. This is Psalm 16. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely, I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life, You will fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. That is a gospel to live by. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you come to find us first, that you are a savior, that it is not up to us to fix ourselves for you. We thank you, Lord, for your patience with us for your generosity with us when we do turn away. We thank you, Lord, that you are not just our master, but also our father, that you forgive us and renew us and welcome us home with outstretched arms. Lord, help us to have the humility to acknowledge our need for you every moment of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.